On behalf of Lineberg Information Services, this is Bob Keebler, and joining us today are James Doherty and Todd Inkatavanich of Withers Bergman. Todd and James are lawyers with the international private law firm Withers Bergman LLP in their Connecticut and New York office. Todd co-heads the firm's estate, trust, and charities practice group in the United States. He is a frequent author and speaker nationally on wealth transfer, planning, preservation, and related business succession topics. James is a member of the Executive Committee of the Estates and Probate Section of the Connecticut Bar Association. He's a frequent author and speaker on all aspects of estate administration, including domestic and international probate, contested trusts, estates, and post-mortem estate planning. So tell me about what happened in Purdue, uh, because Purdue is a very interesting case. To, in my mind, it involves three issues. Uh, Todd, just walk us through that, and then, Jim, if you can give us a brief overview of the facts. Sure. Well, thanks for having us both, Bob. Um, the, the estate of Barbara Purdue, as you said, which just came out on the uh, 28th of December, is really, I guess, a belated Christmas present, uh, not only to the estate, but also to estate planners in terms of clarity. It, it is what we would consider probably one of the very good fact cases uh, in the FLP or FLLC arena. Uh, arena. Um, this is a fascinating case, um, and it's a really good example of how to do uh, some of these entities and administer them properly. Uh, the three uh, primary issues involved here uh, was a 2036 argument uh, by the IRS and, and a good analysis of the bona fide sale exception uh, to the application of 2036. Uh, also, the, uh, uh, the question of whether gifts of those LLC interests qualified for the annual exclusion under Section 2503B. Uh, and lastly, the uh, discussion of the validity of the uh, Reagan loans here. So this is a very good um, uh, case for the taxpayer in terms of result, but also a very good case and a very good read to, to give you uh, some, some good guidance uh, of the way uh, that things should be done properly. And um, uh, we'll, we'll get into the facts of this case now, Jim. Sure. So... To just give a brief factual overview of the matter, and Todd, as Todd mentioned, this is really a good facts make good law case, and we'll, we'll dive into some more of the specific, what are the good facts with, with each of these issues, but to set the background, Barbara Purdue was a resident of the state of Washington, and her and her husband uh, began, began their estate planning in 2000. Her husband was an attorney at the firm that actually did the planning and was successful uh, in the tax court matter here. And their planning involved a lot of uh, common estate planning strategies and done fairly, fairly well. Their net worth at the time was about $28 million when they began their planning. And they formed a Washington limited liability company that they funded initially with $24 million of uh, assets, largely made of uh, liquid marketable securities, some real estate that had long-term leases on it, as well as a personal loan from one of their children secured by real property. They then went on to use this family limited partnership that they created to make gifts to a trust that they created shortly after the limited liability company. The trust had what is commonly referred to as crummy rights in them 
Thanksgiving, each of the children, descendants, and their spouses withdraw rights over an annual exclusion amount each year, which were uh, commonly, which were exercised between the time the trust was set up to the time that uh, Barbara, who is the second spouse to pass away, died in 2007. Upon Barbara's death, there was some issues having liquidity to pay estate taxes, and they took what is commonly referred to as a Gregan loan to provide liquidity to pay taxes, and in turn, they took an estate tax deduction for the interest owed. The IRS challenged this uh, deduction, so that kind of tees up the overview of the three issues that are in play here in this case. The taxpayer prevailed on the Section 2036 attack. Uh, what lessons should planners take away from this? Well, as, as we've seen from a lot of the prior cases, uh, there have been a number of taxpayer victories with respect to 2036 uh, over the, let's say, past decade or so uh, by a satisfaction of the bona fide sale for adequate and full consideration exception to 2036. And, you know, the, the court goes into a very good discuss, discussion here. I mean, the, the practical uh, standard that's been set by the court uh, in order to satisfy this has, has been a showing uh, that the creation and the transfer of assets to this entity were made in furtherance of a legitimate and significant non-tax purpose here. Okay, and that's been broken down into a couple different factors. But really what the court is trying to get to uh, in this opinion and in prior uh, opinions is really trying to figure out the reasons for the creation of this partnership. The court talks about that the significant purpose must be a quote actual mo uh, motivation, not just a theoretical justification. And that's really what they were kind of getting at here. The court goes into a number of, um, uh, of the factors, uh, business purposes that were um, articulated in both the uh, uh, LLC operating agreement, as well as the uh, memorandum that was shared with the clients and the family members. And the facts of the case really indicate that although there was some tax um, uh, savings motivation here, that was not the sole reason. And the court makes the note that, okay, here there was some tax savings that could be achieved by this, and that was discussed in the memorandum to the family but there are a number of other things that this would achieve too. So uh, some of the factors that were very important here uh, were that here initially father owned most of the marketable securities in five different accounts managed at three different investment companies uh, and he solely made the investment decisions. Well, the partnership assets were consolidated uh, and uh, a third-party investment manager was hired to provide advice to the LLC. It was the, uh, the Rainier Group, it was called. And so there was a significant change afterwards in the consolidation of a number of different assets and in different investment companies to uh, one account that was managed by the Rainier Group. Okay. After the creation of the LLC, the father no longer was involved in investment decisions, but rather the children, as they became owners of the LLC, uh, jointly made decisions. Some of the things that we've talked about in the past in terms of kind of good or best practices also to, 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 to bolster the legitimacy of the LLC were followed here, okay? So from inception, the children and the family members uh, and the LLC, they, they set out to have annual meetings. 
they had those annual meetings. During those annual meetings, minutes were taken. Um, actions taken during the year were ratified and memorialized. Uh, cash distributions were discussed and approved. Presentations were made with respect to the investment direction and decisions uh, for, the, for the LLC on an ongoing basis. So this thing really was treated as a separate entity and it was quite different from uh, the assets as they, as they existed before the creation of the LLC. So a lot of the things that we hear, the kind of the, the do's and don'ts in different discussions and articles are things that, that really do resonate here and uh, it, it, it really did resonate with the court here as well. The IRS has challenged whether transfers of partnerships qualify for the annual exclusion. Um, cases have gone both ways. What issues do planners need to be looking for when doing these entities, and what helped the taxpayer here? Well, in this case, the decision did a good walkthrough of the previous case law that was out there, and the, the real concern that the tax court was honing in on, which was discussed in the 2002 Hackle case, is whether when you're transferring a partnership interest, is that giving a true present interest to the donee in the situation, or instead, it, as the Hackle Court put it, is whether they're receiving you know, something that is similar uh, to what a traditional trust agreement would present where the donee's rights to the interest being transferred to them are fairly restricted. Now, past case law has shown that either one, you need to have a, you know, substantial right in the interest being transferred to you right away, or you need a right to the income. Uh, in terms of having a right to the interest in this matter, the, the court didn't find that the taxpayer really had a clear interest different than a trust arrangement right away because the operating agreement was very restrictive. It was a member manager, member managed limited liability company that required unanimous consent uh, of all its members. So very restrictive rights, not allowing the donee to be able to alienate their rights or withdraw capital without the consent of others. So then the analysis turns towards whether the donee had a present interest in the income uh, of, of the partnership interest being transferred to them. And as stated in past cases, the three factors the court looks to is one, is the partnership assets, are they generating income? Two, uh, is some portion of that income going to the members? And three, can the income, the portion be ascertainable? And in this case, the facts all presented very well that the answer to that was yes. Uh, the partnership was clearly generating income as it had rental real estate with a long-term lease on it. It held substantial dividend-paying marketable securities in it, so you could show there was income. And you could also get an idea from that of ascertaining what the income will be. Finally, as opposed to past cases uh, where things have not gone so well for the taxpayer, both the operating agreement and the uh, members' fiduciary duties under Washington state law required that proportionate cash distributions be made uh, from the partnerships to the members uh, to help satisfy income tax payments related to the interest holding in the partnerships. Now, this is very different than, say, the Hackle case in 2002, where you had a manager-managed limited liability company where 
the manager had the discretion to block distributions, much like a trustee would in an absolute discretion trust, and also different from the 2010 price case where in, in the price case, there wasn't a pattern of distributions being made. Here, uh, going back to Todd's point of how a family limited partnership should operate, there was a clear pattern over the years of distributions being made. So not only did the terms of the operating agreement state law help in the situation, but the actual performance of the partnership over time showed that, yes, these members do have a clear present interest in the income and should qualify for the annual exclusion. But the, the court really does make a point to stress that this is very much a facts and circumstances kind of determination. And it says that, quote, a gift in the form of an outright transfer of an equity interest in a business or property, such as a limited partnership interest, is not necessarily a present interest gift. So it's very much going to be based upon the facts and circumstances. And while this is certainly a very good holding for, uh, for the family, I don't think this should be read into as suggesting that any gifts of partnership interest will necessarily qualify for the annual exclusion. Exactly. That the law stand, the legal standard set out here is the same as past cases. And you see cases like this and Wimmer with the good facts lead to the good results as opposed to, to other ones. Part of this case, of course, was the Gregan issue. And typically a Gregan loan involves a loan from sometimes a bank, sometimes a partnership to the estate and interest is paid annually. However, in the past, the tax court has allowed a deduction based on the sum of the future liability instead of instead of causing parties to present value that. So there are a few cases on Gregan loans in the past few years that have not been very favorable. What created the good result in this case? Well, here I know, starting to sound like a broken record, but good facts make good law. If you look at the decisions, you know, on the Gregan cases. There have been a few in the past, uh, really from 2009 through 2013 with Black, Duncan, and Coons. And this this type of loan is, is, is much different. When you compare it to Coons in 2013, you're looking at a $10 million principal loan, trying to get a $71 million interest deduction. Here, it was interesting to see the IRS, you know, challenging this item because the interest deduction the estate was seeking was only $21,000. It's a relatively um, small amount. Now, it, here it was also interesting in the decision because they didn't really, they didn't even mention the word Greg and they didn't walk through the past case law on it, but they did, um, you know, raise the terms used when speaking of Greg and loans. One, that the loan is bona fide debt. Here, the IRS didn't uh, challenge that. Another requirement is that you have, you know, it's that the amount of the interest deduction is ascertainable with reasonable certainty. That usually just requires a simple uh, bar in the prepayment of interest. That wasn't at issue in this case. What was also interestingly not at issue is this indirect use argument that the IRS has been successful with in the Black case and the Coons case, uh, which could have definitely been a point of attack by the IRS here, but not mentioned at all in the decision. What it really came down to was uh, the factor of whether the loan was actually and necessarily incurred. And one may wonder why did they have problems creating the liquidity to pay estate taxes when their interest uh, was in a partnership with such liquid assets. And here you had a good situation where there were five children overall, four were executors of the estate, and the fifth 
was not, but was a member of the partnership. And even though they tried to get a distribution to pay estate taxes, that distribution was blocked by that fifth, creating uh, the necessity that a loan be taken instead of a distribution. It, it's interesting how some disagreement within the family here uh, was a useful factor uh, in determining the legitimacy of this Gregan loan here. We do hear about that sometimes in the FLP context, let's say in the Stone case, but more in the context of 2036 and whether you know the creation of the partnership as a means to resolve some sort of family disharmony may have uh, you know lent itself to 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 a showing that that this satisfied the bona fide sale exception to 2036 because this was a legitimate non-tax reason being pursued in order to resolve that family disharmony. Here, it's being used in a, uh, a different kind of application, but nonetheless, these kinds of things are all sort of intertwined in a sense. Absolutely, and one of the takeaway planning points for doing Gregan loans from this case is something that is was a real uh, chilling effect from the Black case of the tax court and the IRS looking past the duties owed by the executors or members of an LLC in the sense of if you have the same person both on the lender and borrower side of the transaction, that proved to be pretty fatal. And in the Black case, here you have different parties. You have four executors on one side, but that fifth child, uh, the one who was not an executor, was the one objecting. So you have different people involved in the dispute here, which proved very, very useful and goes to a good uh, you know, planning point of if you're going to be structuring these type of loans, it would be good to have different individuals involved as the tax court has at times uh, looked at similar individuals as being the same person, even if they have different fiduciary uh, hats on in their various roles. Todd and Jim, do you have any final thoughts on this and broader related issues? Sure. I think just in closing, I mean, this is this is obviously a, a favorable case. Uh, it is a very useful read, uh, and it's a useful reminder when you go through the opinion of of how maintaining the uh, entity and respecting the formalities of it will really help. Um, you know, the court, you know, in the discussion on the bona fide sale exception, they make an interesting or a, you know a notable quote saying, "We must separate." the true non-tax reasons for the formation from those that merely clothe transfer tax savings motives. And I think that's, that's a very, very apt uh, quote there because they're really trying to look on a facts and circumstances basis at the true motivation. And while tax savings can be one of them, it cannot be the sole or the primary one. You really need some other motivation for it. The other thing that I would say is, and we talk about this uh, quite a bit, that the post formation, operation, and maintenance of entities are so important. And I think that's a good example. When you read through this, the court seemed to be uh, impressed by the fact that in the family members, they did have meetings. They did have them scheduled on an annual basis. They continue to respect the formalities of this transaction. Uh, and they go through a laundry list of different factors in the discussion. But it really boils down to credibility. And this was a very credible structure here. Um, I think the other thing is the court really did seem to be uh, impressed by the fact that there was a separate investment uh, management company that came in to advise the partnership, uh, and, and the, the partnership really took that 
that advice seriously and worked it into its, its, its ongoing meetings and, and its records. Um, so all in all, I'd say this is a very good case and it's a very good kind of uh, guideline to, to read through for some of the things that are the right things to do in the administration of, uh, of a partnership. And just to follow up on Todd's point, I think it goes to show that estate planning is not simply a, uh, a set it and forget it proposition as, as some clients may want it to be, that here a lot of the stated non-tax purposes throughout uh, seemed to be all nice and well, but it was really the after the transaction facts that helped back up the taxpayer here that really propped up the stated non-tax reasons at, at the beginning and showing that here, you know, running things as an actual business uh, and when it comes to the Gregan loan, structuring it in a way that is, you know, a very reasonable loan as opposed to one trying to get a gigantic estate tax deduction all gives credibility to the taxpayer that there were non-tax reasons for doing things going throughout. And as a result, they won. On behalf of Lineberg Information Services, this has been Bob Keebler. And joining us today has been Todd Ankatavanich and James Doherty of Withers Bergman to discuss recent developments in the Purdue case. Thank you for joining us today.